Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest is Dr. R. Albert Moeller. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, a longtime friend of mine, former student, and he's been here at Beeson Divinity School to speak in our series on the Barman Declaration. Al, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Oh, Timothy, what a joy to be here with you. Now, I want to talk uh, about the message you brought today. Uh, we, we gave you a very interesting topic to talk about Barman and the Baptists. Now, I, I knew very well there were no Baptists at Barman. You brought that out. So how were you able to take that message in a direction that was so edifying and helpful today? Well, it struck me that the biggest question was what Baptists should learn from Barman. And there is so much that all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ need to learn from that that moment in church history. And uh, quite frankly, that rather singular moment in terms of confessional history. So I, I took the opportunity to go back and to rehearse both for my own edification and then also for the process of of uh, preparing this message, uh, the history of Barman and how it came to be. It's interesting that reading even that material in the year 2011 is different from reading it when I first began looking at it in the mm. 1980s. The, mm. the world has changed a great deal. Yeah. But the issues still remain the same. And if anything, I was just more chastened by how easily the church is seduced and so there were very clear lessons for Baptists to learn from Barman. One of the things you did today, you know, Barman has the six articles, the affirmation, and then the rejection. Right. And you read all six of those rejections and said it was really important to keep that in mind as a part of what Barman was about. Why is that so? Well, I, I think it's often true that our thought is more clear when we say what it is that we do not believe than when we make an affirmation. And, you know, that is something that educators note, even in pedagogy, that Aristotle noted that in his rhetoric. Uh, when you have to say what something is not, and in our confessional statements, uh, the anathemas or the damnation statements, uh, the statements that repudiate heresy are often exceedingly clear because they are the issues. You know, it, it's kind of like, uh, as Harnock uh, said, even though he's on the wrong side of this equation, it's, it's kind of the rock that's in the shoe that uh, gets the attention and that helps to focus what really is the issue. And for Barman, those six statements are as current as if they were written in the year 2011, and I think they will always be true. Now, we don't have time to go through all six, but I'm going to read the first uh, statement of Barman, Article 1. The positive affirmation says, Jesus Christ, as he is attested to us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God. I think this is Arizona 1, Ina Fort Goddess, the one word of God, whom we have to hear, whom we have to trust and obey in life and death. But then this statement, a comment on this, we reject the false doctrine that the church could and should recognize as a source of its proclamation beyond and besides this one word of God, yet other events, powers, historic figures, and truths as God's revelation. There are at least three things behind that statement. One of them is the clear fact that Karl Barth was the originator. Hmm. And, of course, in terms of history, that statement goes back from the Barman Declaration of May 31, 1934, back to the January formulation, hmm. which Barth had very directly uh, been involved in, which was an even clearer repudiation, and this will be my second point, of natural theology. Yeah. This is echoing his great nine, as delivered to Emil Brunner, on the fact that the church had another source of revelation other than special revelation. 
Jesus Christ's word and the written word of God. And, and the third thing is that in the context of Barman, the Lutheran doctrine of the two kingdoms, with the claim that the earthly kingdom had its own form of revelation in terms of hierarchical orders, was Bart thought, and thought rightly, leading to the uh, the fact that uh, that Germans in general, not just Lutherans, but Germans influenced by Lutheranism, were just too ready to hear the voice of Hitler alongside the voice of God. So the other powers and authorities were things like blood, race, soil, folk, folk, the folk, uh, right? The, uh, the 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 fatherland uh, and ordinances such as government. Mm-hmm. You know, Luther himself made statements of obedience to princes that are just unconditional. Mm. And uh, and Luther saw this as part of, I think, his medieval wor- world picture. Also the fact that the, the princes, uh, for instance, you know, the Elector of Saxony, was crucial to the advance of the Reformation. And so the Lutheran Reformation was, as, as you have pointed out in your own teaching, a princely Reformation that did not set them up well to recognize a demonic prince. Now, of course, there were Lutherans, there were Reformed, there were members of the United Churches coming together at Barman, and Bart and, and most of those that were involved in framing that confession wanted this statement to be above parties, above labels, Right. Uh, and yet that led to some fracturing within the confession itself. Well, you know, I think the average evangelical who knows about Barman and who knows about the confessing church would assume that there were no Nazis in the confessing church. Mm. But in reality, there were Nazis in the Confessing Church because the Confessing Church did not separate from the Nazi regime. It separated from the German Christians, from what it saw as the co-opted, Nazified church. And uh, they felt like they had to stay above politics, probably. And, and again, reading motivations is very difficult, even even when it's your, your own times, much less to look back. It appears that they wanted to have the hope of salvaging something. Mm-hmm. That, that might be salvageable in the midst of the catastrophe of Nazism. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, of course, it didn't work. And as a matter of fact, shortly after Barman in May of 1934, the events went through a catastrophic devolution that led, of course, uh, to the imprisonment, torture, and eventual execution of many of the leaders of the Confessing Church. Yeah, and in a sense, the Confessing Church almost breaks up, doesn't it, in the late it 30s? Does. And ceases to have the kind of, at least for a while, unified witness they aimed at. Well, you know, one of the interesting things about the May 31 event is that the vote was unanimous. Yeah. That really makes it all the more important. But to understand the people who were at that assembly in Barman is to understand that there was a radical wing. Uh, who felt like the statement must break not only with the German Christians but with the Nazi regime. And then there was a more conservative wing, and that to me makes Barman even more important because of the unanimous vote of both of those wings for these statements. There's almost a moment in time when the church came together to give a clear witness. They didn't say everything we might think they should have said. As you pointed out in your lecture, they didn't mention the Jews or Hitler by name. We might have thought they should have done that. And yet what they did say was so extremely succinct and to the point at that very moment that brought together that unanimity. I think most Christians know very few creeds, if any, to their great impoverishment. Uh, And yet if they read Barman, they're going to understand something that I hope my students understand about creeds and confessions. Almost no one adopts one in in a... time warp of no pressure and of, of no controversy, no conflict. Virtually every one of them emerged out of an historical circumstance that demanded a clarification and demanded an answer. And to look back at Barman, 
to realize that these people could easily have almost summarily been executed for what they had to say here. Mm. To get a unanimous vote of these leaders at one moment is just remarkable with this kind of clarity. There was a woman, only one woman delegate at Barman. Her name was Stephanie von Mackensee. Uh, and she was from the eastern part of, of Germany. And she said when when they made that unanimous declaration, she felt the Holy Spirit was sweeping mm-hmm. through the place. And they all stood to their feet to sing, Now Thank We All Our God, which became sort of the central theme song of Barman in, in many ways. Now, I want to focus a little bit on the Baptists. Uh, that's what your subject was, and you did such a wonderful job. One of the, one of the ways you brought this out so clearly was by reminding us of the Baptist World Congress that met right. in Berlin in 1934. Say a little bit about that. Well, the Baptists had decided in the late 20s uh, to meet in Berlin when it was anticipated. We remember that the Olympics and others you mm. know, were becoming a focus of about the same era. Uh, there was the desire to try to influence Germany and to encourage the right people in Germany on various international organizations by going to Berlin. And it's also important for us to remember that Germany was at this point not the Germany of the Third Reich as it became, nor is it the Kaiser's or Bismarck's Germany. This was the Germany that had suffered the reparations, Mm. was in a period which uh, perhaps Americans would most recognize in terms of reconstruction in the South, Mm -hmm. when Germany was coming out of the ruins and out of the rubble, and thus it was a high-minded notion to, to hold a meeting in Berlin. That was a statement of solidarity with a rebuilding Germany. But along came Hitler, and and thus Mm. everything was changed. But the Baptists decided still to go, and uh, to go to Germany in 1934 meant to meet under the aegis of the Third Reich. They were literally meeting by the permission of Adolf Hitler, and that certainly set the stage for an interesting meeting. And he was scheduled to speak to them, but didn't because... He was. uh, Hindenburg had died, Mm. and Hindenburg's public funeral conflicted with the meeting. And I mentioned today, I think that's one of the strange and gracious providence of, of history. Yeah. that Hitler did not actually address the Congress. But there were members of that Baptist World Congress who were Nazis and some who gave, you know, the Heil Hitler salute. For 11 minutes. Yeah. So that uh, puts a different picture on it. Uh, and yet uh, the Baptists did make some very strong statements that spoke to the moment of the, of the meeting. What, right. what were they about? I think it's important for a lot of us to remember that in 1934, the world had not yet taken the full measure of Adolf Hitler. Uh, even just to take one city like London. Uh, London was estimated in the year 1934 to be about one-third uh, hoping for a British Hitler. Uh, you know, In other words, to bring order. To, Hitler appeared to be something new and extremely modern on the scene, a strong man that was much needed after the fall of empires and monarchs at the end of World War One. And uh, so Americans are trying to, to gain an understanding. And, you know, I, I mentioned John R. Sampy, yeah. uh, the, the fifth president of the school I now lead, who was a delegate there and came back and said, one thing you won't see in Germany, you won't see women smoking cigarettes or wearing red lipstick. So a lot of people just saw Hitler as kind of a moral rearmament figure. Mm. And, and by the way, in the United States, the moral rearmament movement and all this is going about at the same time. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of confusion. But the Baptists who were in Berlin quickly came to an understanding of what was going on there. And talk a little bit about the resolutions they passed on, they called it nationalism, racialism. Racialism, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they passed one on nationalism, which sounds remarkably like Barman. Now, not with the kind of confessional depth of Barman, but with the very clear indictment of the fact that the Christian church cannot be co-opted by any nationalist agenda, mm. that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a, it points to a heavenly kingdom, and uh, and it cannot be ruled over by any earthly power. And so that was a very clear statement. 
The statement on racialism was, I think, even more important because one of the main problems we see with Barman is that there's no reference to the Jews whatsoever. Mm. And as Pincus Lapide said, a major Jewish scholar and survivor of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. he Rabbi. Said, mm-hmm. right? He, he said, you know, that is the great uh, silence. Uh, and as he said, uh, the the near brothers of Christ had fallen among thieves and robbers, and mm-hmm. those who carried Christ's name said nothing of it. Very indicting, isn't it? It is, and it's haunting because we recognize that we too could make such a similar mistake. But the Baptists, when they met in 1934, did pass a statement on racialism that explicitly mentioned the Jews and explicitly said that uh, that, the, that Jesus was of the Jews and and that the Jews were uh, were, were a, p- a part of the economy of God's salvation and uh, that it was to be understood they, they had a part in covenant history and salvation history and they were to be honored and, and mentioned uh, a couple of things that were a little interesting there. Uh, in that it, uh, you know, the Balfour Declaration, all this is in the background mm. as well. And so you can see how they're trying to thread the needle to say yeah. that we must speak up for the Jews. One of the things I mentioned in, in my message was that I do think it's, it's, it is required to say that the Baptists who said that in 1934 showed courage and bravery to say such a thing, but they didn't have to stay in Berlin. And so I, I think one of the reasons that you might see it different on the part of someone in Germany was that they were trying to to still operate within Germany. Yeah. Well, um, there's some great figures, of course, in the Baptist world at that time, people like uh, Southern Baptists, we know George Truitt, who was elected president of the Baptist World Alliance in that meeting in Berlin. And uh, uh, five years later, the meeting was held here in Atlanta, 1939. And it was interesting reading through some of those minutes how that there were still back and forth. People weren't sure about – even in 1939, that's, of course, the year the war began. This is a month or two before that. Uh, what was really going to happen and which side they should come down on. Well, let's remember that America was still largely isolationist. Mm. Uh, America did not want to enter to this, did not want to deal with it. They had a fascination with Hitler. Uh, I saw a figure the other day pointing out that the movie reels that were shown before movies in theaters became predominated by Hitler uh, back in the black and white era because he was good theater. Yeah, and, and Americans had this kind of macabre fascination with him, but he appeared to be far, far away. Yeah, uh, one of the fastest kind of demonstrations of cultural change in America, many historians have noted, is that America went from being overwhelmingly isolationist in the mm. late 1930s to being totally mobilized for war. Yeah. You know, by 1941, yeah. the end. One of the things uh, Barman in this whole period points out to me is the fact that all of our heroes, you know, have flawed. Uh, Feet of clay, you know, they're, 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 they're great warts. Uh, you mentioned that today. Luther, the great uh, reformer of the 16th century, said horrible things about the Jews that can in no way be justified by anybody. Right. Uh, and there are other examples of that in, in our own uh, cu- culture and country as Southern Baptists, the whole problem of racism and how we deal with slavery and segregation, that legacy uh, that's still in some ways maybe an albatross around the, the neck of our American culture. It ever will be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's the broken uh, well, let me just say the brokenness and the scandal I think will always bear. Uh, as I said in my message, it's it's one thing to look back to Luther. It's another thing to look back to your grandparents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's another thing to, to, to be educated in an institution where the names of many of the buildings mm-hmm. 
were of people who would be declared as racists. And, and I mean that not only for Sanford University, but also for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's just, just because you go back to the people that built these buildings and, and things in the 1920s and 30s and beyond, and you realize they were glorious Christians in so many ways. Look how they devoted themselves so generously. Look at how they built an institution uh, like this. But you look back and you say, how could they have been where they were? You know, Timothy, I came to this university in 1978. It wasn't long after the racial crisis in Birmingham. The wounds were still very, very close. Uh, Richard Arrington had just been elected mayor and the first Mm. black mayor of Birmingham. And I came to read the history of this city and realized that many of the people I knew from church were the people who were named in these books. Mm. And I knew them, and I knew how much they loved their children and how much they loved the community and how they served the Lord in the church. And for me as a young believer, it was one of those first tortuous experiences in trying to connect A with B. Yeah. You know, Luther has this phrase, simul justus et peccator, at the same time sinful and righteous. And I guess when you study a period like Barman, um, you realize this is a call to repentance. It's it's a confession in two senses. It's a confessing of our faith publicly, a witness to the world, but also a call to repentance and to confessing of our sins to God and to one another. You know, there's a sense in which Luther's about the only way out of this, even though he's the only way into it, too, because I often think of of Luther in terms of uh, his understanding of sin boldly, too, Mm. you know, with the understanding that to really understand how morally complex an equation is could lead to absolute quietude. You know, we we could just surrender and say we can't act because our actions will fall short of the glory of God and fall short of what even a subsequent generation would think we should do, but we still have to do it. You know, people think when he said sin boldly, he meant have a second dessert. That wasn't it. (laughs) He was simply saying, even given your depravity, even given your own mixed motivations, he was speaking of preaching, of course, Mm. even given the fact that you're going to be a sinner when you preach, and you're going to sin while you preach, that's what you're there, and God's people are hungry. That's what you're there for. Get up and preach. So I I think, yes, you're right. You You look backwards. And you say, there must be the confession of sins. I'll I'll look at you today and speak publicly and say, I know that future generations will find sins in me Mm. that I have not seen. And I'm sure there there are blind spots that, by definition, I'm not aware of. I hope they'll be pointed out to me. But at the same time, in the spirit of Barman, with the light we have, we better act rightly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit uh, about... Baptist today, Barman and Baptist today. As you rightly say, the question is, what can Baptist and other Christians, we're focusing on the Baptist because that's what we both are, and that was the topic today, but uh, what can Baptist and other Christians learn from Barman as we look at the church today? What can evangelicals in particular glean from these lessons in the Third Reich that will help us today to be faithful and steady? Uh, Timothy, my own personal testimony has to come out here, if you'll allow me. Uh, I I thought before I perceived the Lord calling me into ministry that I would be going into politics. Because I thought government was where the big questions were really settled, where the big ideas were debated, the the big decisions were made. Uh, I became convinced that was not the case. And that was a part of the Lord calling me into the ministry of the Word, which is uh, unspeakably uh, a greater calling in my understanding. Uh, But in my own biography, I mean, I I was ordained to the ministry in the late 1970s. Uh, I really came into adulthood when the new Christian right was very much in formation. I think it's fair to say I've been very much a part of that. Uh, I think what we've seen over the last last decade, for sure, is that the utter utter, uh, 
lack of the ability of a political movement to deliver on its promises. Mm. And and of what I, I really had known, and that's why I, I couldn't give – I still always gave myself primarily to the preaching of the word, but – I think this this Barman reconsideration helps to to become a catalyst for saying I think the political temptation is always there. Mm-hmm. We do have a political responsibility, yeah. and so I want to speak against those who who try to say that the church should just withdraw from matters of public consequence. Barman comes close to that. I think dangerously close to that in the sixth article, mm-hmm. and and that's where another, I'd rather read the rejection of the sixth article mm-hmm. than the positive statement mm-hmm. because we do have a political witness. We do have to be responsible political actors, but we can never believe that any political unit is going to deliver on its promises. Here's the rejection you just referred to from the sixth article of Barman. We reject the false doctrine that with human vainglory, the church could place the word and work of the Lord in the service of self-chosen desires, purposes, and plans. So we have to be very careful that we don't go down that road. I want to talk just for a minute. We don't have very much longer uh, about some of your other interests, your writings. I mean, uh, you're well-known because you have your own radio ministry. You you speak across the country. Uh, You're recognized as a leader in the evangelical community. Uh, But you're also a writer. You've written a number of very fascinating books. And uh, one in particular I want you to say a word about relates to the new atheism called Atheism Remix, A Christian Confronts the New Atheist. What are you trying to do in that book? Well, I think at the first level, is just trying to give some answer, especially for younger Christians on the university campus, the college campus, who read a Richard Dawkins or a Daniel Dennett or Sam Harris or perhaps even more likely now a Christopher Hitchens and want to know if there's any argument against this. You know, where, where is the argument that uh, presents the alternative to the new atheism? And putting it into context was, I think, an important thing. There is something new about the new atheism. Not, not that atheism's new but that they're very invigorated, um, scientifically-based uh, form of argument strategically directed at university and, and other academic centers. That's something new. Mm. One of the things I point out in the book is something you've probably known for a long time, and that is that the word atheist wasn't even coined until Matthew Coverdale coined it, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, in the Tudor era. Um, you know, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, talks about when ideas become intellectually accessible. Mm. And that's been very helpful to me. Atheism yeah. wasn't intellectually accessible yeah. until the early modern age. But uh, these days on a university campus, it's, it's more than accessible. I wanted to give an answer. And agnosticism, and these are a more recent word, 19th that's right. century. So in a sense, these are new words for things that have been around for a long, long that's time. Right. I think it was Huxley that may have uh, helped right. to invent the word agnosticism. Say a word about your book, He Is Not Silent, Preaching in a Postmodern World. You know, when we had an opportunity one time to talk to undergraduates, I I mentioned my indebtedness to Francis Schaeffer in his Mm -hmm. book, He Is There and He Is Not Silent. Uh, That was put into my hands by a pastor who somehow just knew I needed that book that day. Mm -hmm. And that title stayed with me even when, frankly, as a 16-year-old reading the book, I wasn't sure how much of the book I understood. I understood the title. And so when I wrote a book on preaching, I wanted to make clear that we only preach because God has spoken. And because God has spoken, he has given us the command to preach his word. So he is not silent was the title of the book. And it's, a, it's I hope, a good, inspiring introduction to preaching, which means exposition, but is deeply theological as an act, based on the fact that there is a God and he has spoken and he has commissioned preachers to speak. Tell us what your next book will be. Well, I'm working on a book right now entitled The Conviction to Lead. I'm very concerned about the definition of leadership that is rather common out there, where leadership is basically action and organization. 
leadership is about ideas before it's ever about actions. Mm-hmm. And I want to translate that into the language of conviction and right. and talk about the conviction to lead. And then the other work I'm working on rather urgently is entitled Maker of Heaven and Earth, and it has to do with uh, recovering a theology of creation, not just a doctrine of creation, but a theology of creation on the other side of, uh, well, not only the new atheism, but the new Darwinism. Yeah. This brings me back uh, to where we started with, with Barman, and you remember Karl Barth's whole emphasis on the first commandment. He said, this is really about, you shall have no other gods before me. That's right. In some ways, that is always the question for the church and always the question for uh, the preaching of the gospel, especially in our world that's so tempted to idolatry in so many different ways. Um, We're about to close this podcast, but uh, as you think about those who are listening, particularly pastors, younger pastors, and others who are charged with teaching and preaching the Word of God faithfully in a culture that is certainly a culture of death, a culture of decay, a culture in decline in many ways, perhaps. Uh, what is a word of hope and encouragement you can share with them? Oh, Jesus is Lord. You know, that, that, that is the most countercultural statement we can make. It is the declaration that there is a king and there is a kingdom uh, that is not of this world, that is not susceptible to, uh, to imperial decay, that is not driven by the kind of uh, of concerns of earthly regimes and and that's why I wanted as the text of my message to go to Revelation chapter 19. Yeah. With uh, Jesus riding the white horse. Tell and, us a little bit about that text because I thought that was yeah. an unusual text for your message on Barman today. Well, I I think it, I don't think I could have been at Barman had I been able to be there without having that text in mind to some mm. degree because in Revelation 19 it's Jesus judging the nations. Mm. And uh that is what's going to happen. We need to realize that every regime is going to be relativized by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, that's a, uh, if you're not familiar, take down your Bible. Give us that text again, Revelation. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. Yeah, take, take out your Bible and read down to the end of that chapter, verse 22, I think, because it's, in, it's a very gory passage it in the is. Bible about these birds feasting on the flesh of the fallen of captains kings. captains and, and kings. Exactly. And it, I was struck as we were reading it and you were talking about that today, uh, how that contrasts with the other supper in the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I recently preached that very text for that reason and just reminded uh, those who are hearing me preach that we will be at either of those two suppers. Mm -hmm. We'll either be dining with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb by his grace and for his glory, or we will be the meal Mm. where the vultures gather and we have Christ judging the nations and all those who do not, by faith and repentance, come to him. It's a conclusive word. But then the book of Revelation is a very conclusive word. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus. And Jesus Christ, as he has attested to us in the Holy Scripture, is the one word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. Article 1 of the Barman Declaration. My guest today has been Dr. R. Albert Moeller, Jr. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you, Al, for this conversation and for sharing fellowship with us here at Beeson today. Dr. George, what an honor to be here with you. You have, uh, for most of my life, uh, been one of my most cherished teachers and friends, and I'm so thankful for you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, beesondivinity.com. 
Decent Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.